Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At the start of the 21st century, developing economies were a source of unbounded optimism and fierce ambition. But the pandemic has revealed a very different picture. Many poor and middle-income countries seem to be losing the knack of catching up with the richest ones. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Rachna Shanbhog, finance editor at The Economist, and on today's show, is the golden age of emerging markets over? The reform that's needed to execute the catch-up growth, which a textbook suggests is there for the taking, just seems to be very difficult for countries to actually implement. So this is a, a big time for the private sector to really step in and do things differently, faster, in a much less conservative way. Just before the financial crisis, when globalisation was going full throttle, some 40% of all footwear exported around the world came from just one country, China. Chinese manufacturing capacity had exploded, helping carry it to jaw-dropping economic growth. Its share of global GDP tripled in less than 20 years. For a while, it looked like all that other emerging economies had to do to follow in those phenomenal footsteps was to copy a seemingly simple formula. Embrace new technology, put it to work in manufacturing, and open up to trade to sell those shiny new goods to the world. But a decade later, China still made a third of all the shoes shipped worldwide. Much of its lost share has gone to just one country, its next-door neighbour, Vietnam. So why has it proved so difficult for other countries to follow China's example? And how can countries now battered by the pandemic get back on that path to rapid growth? To investigate all this, I'm joined from Washington, D.C. by our trade and international economics editor, Ryan Avent, the author of this week's cover story on this subject. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Ryan. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Rajan. Thank you. Uh, happy to have seen this briefing off and enjoying unseasonably cool August weather for Washington. Doing very well. And from Hong Kong, our China economics editor, Simon Cox. Welcome, Simon. What have you been up to lately? We in Hong Kong are trying to decide how to spend our government consumption vouchers that have been uh, added to our Alipay accounts. Um, it's a use it or lose it consumption voucher. Very exciting. Well, and listeners will be able to look forward to your um, piece on those vouchers in the forthcoming issue. But this time we're going to be talking about Ryan's cover story of the current issue. And Ryan, to start us off, perhaps you can help us with the terminology here. The phrase emerging markets gets thrown around a lot. So what does emerging mean and which countries are we talking about? Yeah, it's a good question. There's lots of cross-cutting definitions. The uh, phrase emerging markets was dreamed up in the early 80s as kind of a a polite way of saying uh, what at the time were referred to as third world economies. Uh, What the briefing is focused on is is what you would call middle or low income countries. So it it is essentially countries that have not fully industrialized, not attained high income levels like those in, in the rich world. 
And Simon, before moving over to cover China, you were our emerging markets editor. Uh, Tell us about the mood back in the 2000s and why the 2000s were so good. Yeah, it changed quite quickly. Um, so at the very beginning of the 2000s, it was actually you know a, a time of reflection. Uh, we'd had a series of emerging market financial crises uh, culminating in Argentina's spectacular default. But by about 2003, you know, India's growth rate had picked up. Uh, that shared in some of the enthusiasm and euphoria attached to China's continued growth. And then during that um, long boom uh, culminating in the global financial crisis, prosperity just seemed to, to spread so that a variety of countries all seemed to be doing very well. So China you know, succeeded through um, manufacturing investment, and that bid up the prices of commodities, which helped you know, a variety of emerging markets. And then interestingly, even during the global financial crisis or in the immediate aftermath, lots of people were talking about how surprisingly resilient they'd been and how they had fared better than the developed world. So I would say peak enthusiasm was perhaps around 2009, 2010, perhaps 2011, that sort of period. I mean, it was just extraordinary the extent to which opinion shifted from the turn of the millennium to 10 years later when there was what you might call triumphalism, I think, you know, especially in China, you know, regarding the success of their model vis-a-vis, you know, Western economies, which are in such dire straits. And, and I think it was because things seemed so uh, so certain to continue in that vein that the, the slowdown that followed was such a, a gut punch, I think, for a lot of people living in poor countries. So the numbers on this are really, really striking. In the 1980s, only a third of countries had GDP per head rising faster than America's. By 2000, that share had grown to over 80%. And yet, by the mid-2010s, that had dropped back to just 59%. Ryan, tell us what happened in the aftermath of the commodity boom that Simon was just describing. Well, from, you know, from the uh, this sort of early part of the, the 2010s, you saw this split within the emerging world where the, the really commodity-dependent economies started to fall behind. Uh, and so, you know, for instance, you saw continued fast growth in China and India, uh, whereas you saw a, a sharp slowdown in Russia and a, and a pretty serious recession in Brazil. And I think that sort of revealed the extent to which this broad growth uh, phenomenon had a different character in some places than others. That some places were really undergoing kind of a, a an economic transformation, industrializing, becoming more like mature economies, and others weren't. And then you know we get to the pandemic, you know, huge disruptions to learning, big disruptions to trade, and it, it looks as though possibly the conditions that supported even the continued growth of the fortunate bunch that kept catching up may face some challenges now. So perhaps the defining acronym of this period, one of the most successful investment acronyms of all time, was the BRICS, which was uh, cooked up by Jim O'Neill, a chief economist of Goldman Sachs, back in 2001. Uh, BRICS standing for Brazil, Russia, India and China. And it was actually quite a prescient concept back in 2001. People weren't particularly excited about all four of those economies. And then over the subsequent 10 years or so, they did remarkably well. And in fact, a lot of the early projections were too conservative. But there's an old England football manager, uh, Sven Goran Eriksson, who was famous for saying, first half good, second half not so good. And I think that also applies to the BRICS. The uh, 2010s have not been so kind. And we uh, actually caught up with Jim O'Neill for a chat about how he reflects on on the 20 years that have passed since he coined uh, the BRICS acronym. If there's a general surprise, is that it seems to be quite hard for places outside of North Asia to actually get close to achieving their potential. And at the end of the day, it boils down to the the working age demographics and productivity. But it just seems to be easy for people like me and others to talk about and actually quite hard 
for it to, to really happen, unless you happen to be in North Asia, because, of course, the standout place is China. Turning it to specific, you know, one of the surprises is just how China did almost exactly everything we assumed. It's quite scary in a way. And it's a true, true standout of the BRIC countries in that sense. India's actually made some progress. To some degree, Russia and Brazil, you couldn't really test their true potential until we entered a period of declining commodity prices. So the first decade for them was fantastic. Surprise, surprise, second decade being a disaster. And then, you, as you mentioned, the sort of swing player, if you like, uh, might be India. How do you feel about it now? As, all, as ever with India, I find it quite easy to change your mind every week because it's just such a complex place. Of course, the reason they've got away with it is because they have just fantastic demographics. Because they've sort of been 20 years in certain aspects, particularly urbanization behind China, the urbanizing part of their demographic has sort of carried India along the pathway that other big places, including Brazil and Russia, haven't had the benefit of. Uh, because they haven't really, of course, really reformed much at all. And in that sense, I think particularly under the near decade of Modi, where they should have emerged as growing stronger than in terms of rates of GDP growth than China has been a disappointment. Could we talk a, a little bit about the future and about uh, the phenomenon of catch-up growth? You know, that idea of convergence was core to the productivity modelling uh, in the BRICS exercise. Yes, it was. Do you think catch-up growth has become harder? Seemingly, yes. Reflecting back on it beyond the brick, so to speak, to, to what or became known as the next 11 and within it, what others called the mint countries. When I was leaving Goldman and eight years ago, Mexico was the darling of the global investing world and it turned out to be a damp squib. Turkey, of course, constantly disappointing despite great demographics. The only one that sort of has surprised me in, in how well it's handled the world turbulence has been Indonesia. You know, when you think of the commodities exposure they have and many other issues, and, and again, linking it to a geography, outside of a sort of, uh, a sort of North Asian culture, because Vietnam is, is one that's obviously done well, you know, it's hard to find places. So if there's a commonality, it's, it, it seems to be that the reform that's needed to execute the catch-up growth, which your textbook suggests is, you know, is there for the taking, just seems to be very difficult for countries to actually implement. Three additional threats to catch-up growth that people often mention are climate change, deglobalization, and then third is automation and just the fact that manufacturing seems less labor-intensive than it used to be. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of dubious. On, on, the, on the second and third, I'm pretty dubious. Dubious uh, in the sense you don't think they're a big threat? I, I, think, I think the whole sort of uh, deglobalization story is there's a lot of hype. If you look at the, the rate of recovery of global trade and aspects of, of, of global investment and interconnectivity in the pharmaceutical industry is something that nobody would have ever dreamt of. You know, the, the big story, again, in, at least in the developed world the past decade, is just how strong employment was. There was questions about the quality of it, but so I don't really believe those two. I think the climate change one is a lot more complicated. A, because of the apparent obvious 
uh, risk with it, the uncertainty about how you manage it and deal with it, it is a big threat. And obviously, seemingly with a lot of tropical places, particularly in Africa, one that those countries themselves can't really solve. And could I ask a a kind of meta question? Clearly, this sort of long-term projections that uh, you did with with the BRICS is is a formidably difficult exercise. Some might ask, you know, why bother? (laughs) Uh, Good question. You know, the, the simple answer is because I often reflect on how come it sort of became such a huge thing. And I think the answer is because it gives you a framework, you know, in parallel with all this, I presided over the development of something called a a growth environment score, which was an index that looked at 15 variables for sustainable growth. And I say it now because reflecting back on that, surprise, surprise, the country of the BRICS that had the highest one persistently was China, despite its autocratic government. And so perfectly consistent with China doing the best of the four. Simon, to what extent do you agree with Lord O'Neill's analysis that it's crucially been a lack of reform that's held back potential growth in emerging economies? Well, reform's a, a tricky word. And, you know, I was in India during the go-go years and it didn't seem like they were doing an awful lot of reform, but um, they just seemed to be on the right side of history in some sense. And perhaps that did eventually catch up with them. It's also certainly true that countries like Russia haven't succeeded in diversifying. But again, there are quite profound economic forces mitigating against that. If you know, oil prices are going through the roof, it's quite hard to um, get other parts of the economy to flourish. I think it's also true that there are countries that could have done more to capture uh, some of the manufacturing that China seemed to dominate, although it's not that simple a formula. And some people argue that the sort of single-minded pursuit of growth that you do see uh, in places like China, at least during its breakneck catch-up phase, that's also quite hard to replicate. Lots of other forces pulling on the polity Reforms are certainly much easier to prescribe in the leader pages of The Economist than they are to enact um, in these you know, diverse and, and robustious uh, emerging markets. If you sort of take a broad perspective, I think you have to say that there were enabling reforms in places like China uh, and India that, you know, China's turn toward opening up and allowing in market forces in the, in the late 70s was a, a necessary condition, I think, for its later explosive growth, as was, you know, liberal reforms in, in India in the early 1990s. But it clearly wasn't sufficient. And I think what we saw was structural shifts around the global economy that provided these sort of broad tailwinds that kind of benefited countries, which, which perhaps hadn't done quite as much. But it's really interesting to be back in this place. You know, in the 1990s, there was an awful lot of debate about, you know, what was it that countries like South Korea had done to, to allow them to have these growth miracles? Why couldn't other countries replicate it? Uh, and then for 20 years, we kind of didn't have to talk like that because everyone was growing and it, and, and it seemed like the old rules had been repealed. Uh, and now we're back there again. It's, it's weird to have made that journey and also, I guess, a bit depressing given what it might imply. I think that might actually take us quite nicely to China, which in many ways seems sort of a very unique growth story. Because it's so big, it also has knock-on effects on the development of other countries. So how has the path that China's taken in the past decade affected the prospects of of other emerging markets, Brian? It's a really fascinating question. And it's something I come back to often is sort of how much of this kind of 20 year experience that we've gone through really is, is a China story. Because you're right, there is this sort of the fact of China's rapid growth created conditions which provided tailwinds to other countries too, through higher commodity prices and, and things like that. 
which I think makes the kind of way that policy within China has shifted a big concern, I think, for the future of countries hoping to, to follow this path, because you know, China has become increasingly interested in becoming self-sufficient in production of a lot of important inputs, uh, and it has not shed sort of low-wage industries in the way you might have thought it would as its income increased. And, and that matters because you would think that you know those industries would, would migrate to other countries that have... Uh, lower income levels and would allow them to get a foot on the development rung. And, you know, relative to a world in which, you know, China's economy kind of followed the typical trajectory and, you know, consumption rose dramatically as a share of income, I think we're we're not in that world and that's worrying. So I think I, I differ a little bit uh, with Ryan on, on this particular question. It's true that compared with some counterfactual future in which, you know, China's consumption, you know, rocketed ahead and, and China ceased to be any kind of industrial competitor, then you know, obviously uh, the future isn't as good as that. But compared with the recent past, um, you might say that the, the prospects created by China's development actually look quite good for other emerging markets. So it's less of a competitor now than it was um, in those lower end manufacturing. Consumption has increased slowly as a share of China's GDP. It's not just consumption that matters, it's domestic demand. And that's actually increased more dramatically than consumption. So China, you know, I think it's more sort of scary now to South Korea than it is to to a Bangladesh or a Vietnam, or even potentially an India. We did say in the sort of earlier part of this conversation that you know China's growth sort of complemented some of the commodity producers. Um, but of course, in, in bidding up the price of commodities, it makes it more difficult for them to succeed as manufacturing powers. And so I think you know the, the sort of switch in that, where the commodity prices come down and perhaps the manufacturing prices go up, creates an opening, but it's yet to be seen whether many countries will adapt to it. I wanted to come back to the meta question that that Simon asks on groupings and whether it's sort of worthwhile. Does it make sense to think about the BRICS or or mint countries as a group if it if it ever did? Is it even helpful to talk about emerging economies as a group given the vast divergence in their experiences? I think it it can be useful if you go into it with your eyes wide open. I mean, it is you know kind of on its face a little bit absurd uh, to say that you know India, Russia, China, and Brazil are all. Uh, in some ways similar. At the same time, I think it is useful. I think probably the biggest way is that it reminds people in rich countries that there's a lot of other world out there. Uh, even after this growth performance that we've seen, China is this huge star, and yet its its income level is still well short of rich country levels. And these are billions of, of people that we're talking about, and, and they're people who are going to be facing you know serious crises related to climate change and, and so on in the future. Simon? Well, um, until recently, I was emerging markets editor. So when I was emerging markets editor, I would argue that absolutely emerging markets make sense as a concept. Now I'm no longer emerging markets editor. I can admit that that no, it doesn't. Um, but I would say one caveat, which is that you do wonder sometimes if a concept like emerging markets is sort of self-fulfilling. You know, if enough money managers are thinking in terms of emerging markets, then they will start to respond similarly um, to financial upsets. You know, people will just move their money out of emerging markets as a whole um, without discriminating too much between them. And that creates a common fate for them, at least in the financial sphere. Thank you both very much. Um, We'll explore how emerging markets might be able to get back on the path to growth in just a minute. But first, if you like what we do and want to read and listen to more, take a second to subscribe to The Economist. As well as Ryan's briefing on 20 years of the BRICS, this week's issue takes an unflinching look at China's sudden crackdown on education tech companies. We also ask why, despite a weak economy, Nigerian fintech is booming. Money Talks listeners can get a special introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. And that link is in the notes for this episode.
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The phrase emerging markets has an undeniably positive ring to it. That's no accident. It was coined 40 years ago as a clever marketing tactic by an investor at the International Finance Corporation. The IFC is the branch of the World Bank that works with the private sector to try to attract investment and boost growth in poorer countries. But not all emerging markets are created equal. The IFC has come under fire for focusing its investment in slightly richer ones, places like China, Turkey or Brazil. In the past few years, it's promised to redress that imbalance. It's now headed by Maktar Diop, a former finance minister of Senegal and the first African to run the organisation. Our correspondent, Kinley Salmon, interviewed Mr Diop for Money Talks and asked him why he believes it's the private sector that holds the key to unlocking growth in even the poorest countries. We know that growth is coming largely from the private sector in all countries, in all economies, and Africa is not different. The private sector in larger economies is hesitating in going in this frontier market, this riskier market, the market where you have more instability fragile and low-income countries. So we are opening those markets, creating conditions in those markets for the large liquidity available in the world to be channeled. I'm struck by the focus on Africa. Do you think that in the past the IFC has underinvested in Africa? No, IFC didn't invest in Africa. IFC invested in Africa, but at a level that was commensurate to the ambition of African countries. That's what I can say. Uh, between 2011 and now, we have doubled our lending in Africa. For the forthcoming year, we intend also to double our lending from 5 billion to 10 billion. Private saving is low in Africa, while we have huge investment need. So we need to capture that private saving and liquidity in the world and channel it in productive sectors in the continent. There were, at the time, a lot of FDI going to, to some African countries, but they were going mainly in commodity sector. To sustain growth, to be able to make this economy more resilient, we need to develop and work in those sectors which are less capital intensive, we are creating more jobs, and which are able to sustain long-term growth in those countries. Another criticism that's been leveled at the IFC is that it favours big deals with impressive top-line numbers over smaller ones that might have a more development impact. How do you balance uh, the commercial demands with those development objectives? We need both. We need large infrastructure investment, which will benefit the small holders, the small farmers. It will allow workers who are working in a remote area to commute more easily. And we will be able to bring more women to work because they will be accessing more services. We know that there is a huge energy deficit in Africa. And if you don't have enough energy, you will not be able to create jobs and to create sustained growth. But we realize over time, like everybody, that it's not sufficient. Today, we have found much more uh, adapted instruments what we are doing. We are working on initiative on medium-scale enterprises. We also are working on creating that network of small enterprises in Africa to favor inter-African trade. And we believe that now with the 
African Free Trade Agreement, we have an opportunity to move on both fronts and be able to do that. So we see that in, in many rich countries, particularly in the United States, the recovery is outpacing expectations. But we also see inflation now starting to pick up. Are you concerned that as the Fed considers raising interest rates, investment may start fleeing emerging markets, as has happened in the past? For the time being, there is not yet a consensus among uh, economists. I don't see uh, a major indication of fleeing investment. What I saw is a slowdown in FDI. And I think that the slowdown in FDI was maybe less linked to interest rate movement in the US or the places for when it comes to Africa, but much more the slowdown in the demand of some of the commodities which were important and by the slowdown in growth and the uncertainty that you have in certain uh, part of Africa. So this is a, the big time for the private sector to really step in and do things differently, faster, and looking at the risk in the developing countries, particularly in Africa, in a much less conservative way by realizing that uh, there are huge opportunity and sometimes the perception of risk in those countries is much, much, much too high. And when it exists, institutions like ours are here to help mitigate that risk. Mr. Diop understandably thinks the private sector is key here. Ryan, do you think his analysis strikes the right balance between the role of international institutions, the state and private companies? Well, I think it ends up depending on, on, on what part of the emerging world you're looking at. You know, there are places, the upper middle income countries in Latin America, uh, where uh, it's really you want to see more of a role in the economy for the private sector. And that ends up making a huge deal. There are places like sub-Saharan Africa where state capacity and the, just the, you know, the ability to kind of build the infrastructure that's needed to tie a country into the global economy end up being much more important. I think the interesting question is, you know, what's the right role for the international community at large? And I, I think that ends up changing over time as climate change becomes more of a threat. I, th- I think it's true that you know, markets um, haven't sort of won ideological legitimacy in a lot of places. I used to feel this particularly in, in India. And so I think, you know, sort of building the positive case for the private sector is, is, is worthwhile. And you know, there are some countries where I feel that, that case is yet to be really made or won. Now, one crucial factor in the fate of the private sector in these countries is, is the role of foreign investment. Mr. Diop there said that capital flight caused by rising rich world interest rates is the wrong risk to focus on right now. But we all remember the impact of the taper tantrum in 2013 when that did happen. What do you think, Ryan? I think the, that, that sort of risk is overstated a little bit. If you look back at you know, the countries that were thrown into the fragile five in, in 2013, you know, it included you know, India and Indonesia, countries which really just kept on chugging for the second half of the decade. So I think that that tends to be overstated. And, you know, and the other thing to consider is that if you're getting rich world inflation, that means you've got rich world economies running at a pretty good clip, which is, which is a good thing on the whole. Those, those are places that support a lot of economic activity elsewhere. So I, I don't worry about that nearly as much as I worry about other, other things in the aftermath of the pandemic, political instability, institutional backsliding, uh, or just the continued pandemic itself, you know, endangering economic activity in a lot of these places. I have a speculative thought, Rajan, on, on this, which is that, you know, one notable thing we've seen in emerging markets is uh, the efforts they've made to become more macroeconomically resilient. That is, you know, improved monetary policy, you know, fighting inflation with greater determination, uh, efforts to accumulate foreign exchange reserves, uh, shifts away from dollar debt, particularly in places like Brazil and, and, and Russia. 
And I sometimes wonder if you know, the, the amount of effort they've needed to put in to achieving that kind of macroeconomic resilience has it had any negative side effects? Has it meant that they haven't sort of pursued growth with the same sort of elan and expansiveness they might otherwise have done? I think Simon has a really interesting thought there. And it's perhaps, Rajna, perhaps something to come back to in our pages. You know, if, if, to imagine the last 20 years, if you had the same amount of kind of globalization and trade, but without the accompanying financial globalization and the, the risk that that brought along. Would growth have been the same? Might it even have been better? An interesting idea. If we step away from sort of purely looking at markets and the balance between the private sector and the state and so on, you sort of touched on political instability. Can we just muse a little bit on what happens if the status quo continues? Sort of how, how high are the stakes here? I may be more pessimistic than uh, most people on the team here at The Economist, but you know we have a, about a decade to try to get this back on track. Um, we're staring down the barrel of climate change. You know, climate change is going to be something that adds to political instability, induces more migration, uh, you know, undermines the capacity for growth there. And so, if you're not able to sort of get yourself on a path toward development in time, then you, you sort of lose that opportunity. One thing to, to make a note of is the fact that over the last 20 years, uh, income inequality between rich countries and poor countries shrank dramatically. But uh, within countries, both in the rich world and, in, uh, and across emerging markets, inequality increased. And that creates a lot of stress. It creates a lot of pressure to, uh, on governments. And so I think that to move into this world where the pie is just not growing as fast and people suddenly start focusing more and more on how, the way in which it's, it's cut up, that's a difficult thing for a lot of places to manage. I think you put it quite well, actually. I, I mean, I think that we've be, we've been quite gloomy in this discussion. You know, it's perhaps worth you know, pointing out that you know, there are some big populous countries that are still doing quite well, or at least we hope will re- return to quite rapid growth uh, once the, the pandemic subsides. But um, this idea that we might sort of run out of time because um, climate change makes everything much more difficult, I think is a real concern. In a lot of ways, I feel like a lot rides on how well India ends up performing over the next uh, few decades. It's, it's a country that's home to 1.4 billion people. You know, the effects of a much richer India on that region are going to be a big deal. And so to see kind of the, the increasing problems of governance is something that strikes me as particularly distressing. So that's a sort of rather um, gloomy conclusion there on India and the threat of cli- from climate change more broadly. But if we try to think about how things can be turned around, what would enable a path back to the potential growth of the 2000s? And is the formula different, Simon? Well, one thing the pandemic has done is force countries to think a little bit more imaginatively about social protection systems. Uh, and you know, a number of emerging economies, Brazil uh, very notably, you know, experimented with quite generous cash handouts by you know, Brazil standards. Uh, there's also, I think, a sense in which uh, countries feel they have a little bit more fiscal freedom than the, perhaps they would have thought in the past. Of course, the pandemic has also created massive social need. But you could sort of imagine a situation in which um, improvements in the social safety net were seen as some sort of quid pro quo for um, reforms to promote growth. And they needn't just be the sort of liberal prescriptions that uh, we the economists would favour, but just making growth a priority, which you know, it actually isn't for a surprising number of governments. That, I guess, is the way forward. But again, easier to prescribe than to enact. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I agree with Simon. I, I think it's in important for governments in the rich world to, to the greatest extent possible, make sure that reforms are rewarded um, and make sure that the, the global economic climate is one in which good things happen to countries that kind of do the things that we think are likely to work. And so part of that is about, you know, making sure that world trade remains open, uh, you know, not going full bore for 
self-sufficiency and turning inward. Yeah, I think there's also enormous scope to do good by investing in physical infrastructure. And then, you know, you also have the way in which investments in infrastructure uh, can help ensure that as they develop, they're doing so in ways that are less carbon intensive. And so there's a, I think there is a huge amount of good to be done, but a lot of what we need to do is make sure we're not making things actively worse, which is certainly a direction in which we may head. And on that note, Ryan Avon and Simon Cox, thank you both very much. That was absolutely fascinating discussion. Thank you, Rasha. Thanks, Rasha. And thank you for listening. For an extra helping of Money Talks, you can also sign up to our new free newsletter. It's got the best of our analysis of the latest in economics, business and the markets all gathered together in one place, along with personal insights direct from our correspondents. You can sign up at economist.com slash moneytalks. The producer was Amika Shortino-Nolan. Carla Patello is our sound engineer. I'm Rachna Shanbog, And in London, this is The Economist. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.